Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name's Christina, and I am the blogger behind We Are Living Art. And my name's Danielle, and I'm the blogger behind All Things Coveted. Are we bloggers? Are we influencers? We don't even know. Content creators, all of the above. All of the above. Um, But we're here to share the inside scoop of all of that for you guys, so you know exactly what the fuck is going on. Honestly, guys, I'm just going to jump right into it. Today has been a little bit of a shit show. A little bit, to say the least. So we arrived at an appointment, an interview, early, and then this wonderful lady right here. So we found the perfect parking spot, guys. We were a little early for our interview that we're going to introduce to you in, like, a few minutes. And then I realized I forgot the mic. And Danielle was like... You're, you're, you're joking. You're joking. Because literally so many... Like, haha, you're making a joke. I actually even said, it was like, also, I found my AirPods this morning. It's such a good day that I had <laughs> yeah. literally lost for like three weeks or thought I lost. Yeah. yeah. So I forgot the mic. So I had to drive back. Did it last long? No. But luckily, I still made it back only two minutes late. So I was like, Danielle, you go in, bring the coffee, settle in. And she's like, yeah, I told them you're parking. You're finding parking. Um, and luckily, parking is very difficult to find in Toronto easily. So... It kind of covered my ass a little bit. Yeah. Touching back on that, the reason why that I was, forgot my mic isn't just because I was irresponsible. It's because I couldn't find it. So. And why is that? Well, okay, this is what happened. So I've been living by myself for a bit, taking care of my dog, just me and my dog, living solo. It's been great. You know, we have our routine down pat. My mom comes back from vacation, not vacation, but she comes back from a trip been three weeks since I've been alone. My brother has to move back in for a few days before he moves out into another place. So he brings all of his shit from the, his old place. So my mom decides to take all my stuff out of my brother's room because obviously that's my second closet. It has my inventory, all my clothes, everything I'm going to shoot. And she just shoves it all around the house. So the house looks like a fucking pigsty. My room now has a bunch more shit in it because she obviously relocated it. And I'm just like not in an organized mindset. So I forgot where I'd left the mic and like I didn't even think twice when I left the house just kind of left yeah I just left I just like thought I hadn't even think about it but if I had been by myself I would have known where where you had put it you'd been more organized you'd have felt a little bit yeah so like honestly living with people can be hard sometimes I don't know like what's your experience you've been living with your boyfriend for a while my experience I can't really speak on that because I mean it's been good so far I do most of the organizing and it's pretty easy I haven't had too many situations where like I felt unorganized or that's lucky my things were put in different places. Are you the one putting things in Maybe. different places? <laughs> I, I tend to like, 
hide not hide things but like for example if there's like keys or a wallet or something left I'll like put it where it's supposed to go because I hate seeing like clutter it also makes me feel like there's like chaos around me if it's like too cluttered but other than that I don't know I don't know what my boyfriend can say about it but I I, like I'm just thankful she cleans and she cooks for me yeah (laughs) let's let's go with that (laughs) but speaking on the fact of cursing yeah I'm interested so what's your favorite like go-to curse word I say fuck yeah me too a lot that's like really to fuck, the point shit bitch <laughs> <laughs> no for me it's the same fuck is like definitely my go-to are you fucking like you, yeah I like, over- like you sub your toe you're like oh fuck yeah you're not like motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> sometimes right. well yeah that's true actually that's a worse thing when you like stub your toe on your bed yeah sometimes Ooh. i just grunt really loud Ooh. like oh <laughs> So today we are in the hashtag paid offices. Yes, we're downtown Toronto. They are located on Adelaide, for those of you wondering. And hashtag paid is a very, very cool company. It's a tech social platform that connects brands and influencers for campaigns, collabs. And um, we'll let Adam, the CEO or one of the CEOs, sort of take it away. So welcome back to our podcast. I'm Danielle, for those of you who are just tuning in. And my name is Christina. We're welcome both- to In Case You Haven't Heard. Welcome to In Case You Haven't Heard. So today we have a exciting guest on our pod, um, a friend of mine, Adam. He is the CSO of Hashtag Paid. And Adam, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your role and about Paid, Hashtag Paid. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> He's like, there's so much to talk Yeah, there, I don't know where to start. That's like so where open-ended. Just, just, where do I so begin? So what, what does the company do? Briefly, and then we'll get And explain your role within the company. So at Hashtag Paid, we are a creator media platform. So we work with creators, not influencers, which I'll get into. And we allow marketers to work with creators and report on their programs like they do other media channels. We want to make it easy and seamless to work with them and track the results. We do that through a platform that we've built. So on one side, we've got over 20,000 creators. On the other side, we've got hundreds of marketers from SMB companies all the way up to Fortune 1000s. And we broker deals between the two. That's all service through the platform. How has your role from the beginning, being a co-founder, how has it changed up until this point? That's a five-year story. So when I started, it was obviously just my co-founder and I. Funny enough, I was originally our CEO and was tasked with going out, meeting investors, raising money. Brian was in sales and we both were floundering in our roles and not getting the job done quite as we had hoped. And probably six months into the business, we actually switched roles and I went into sales and Bri went into fundraising mode. And if we didn't make that switch, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. First deal we ever sold was to Pepsi to launch Mountain Dew Kickstart across Canada. That one deal was tremendous. I had never studied advertising. I had never worked with any ad agencies. I didn't really understand how marketing worked. Yet I was sitting around a boardroom table with the Pepsi team, the Mountain Dew team, their various agencies. And I remember them slotting us in for about $15,000. And by the end of the meeting, they said, actually, we'll give you guys 25,000. And they took that additional 10,000 from one of the other agencies that was sitting in the room. Flash forward a week later, the investor to that agency called Brian and said, hey, you guys are obviously doing something right. If you're stealing budgets from us, the traditional agencies, I want to invest in you. And because of that first sale to Pepsi, we ended up getting our first check from that investor. Wow. So that was your first real check from an investor that invested in hashtag paid other than 
you and Brian. Exactly. So wow, that was in uh, about May or June of 2015. Okay. That was the first check of our first round. It was an angel round. Did you we, reach out to family and friends as well? Or? We did not. Okay. We didn't want to put our family and friends in that position mm -hmm. where investing in a startup is the riskiest thing you can do. While we are confident that our investors will see a return, you don't want to mix business and pleasure if you don't have to. How did you find the investors that were right for, for, for sure. to grow the so company? For sure. So our headquarters is in Canada. Brian and I are from Toronto. So we started with the Canadian network. There really aren't that many investors in Canada that are willing to invest in high-risk tech right. startups. So at the time, we were in Ryerson's incubator, the DMZ. Mm -hmm. And the DMZ really set us up for success. Like We owe all of our early success in the first couple of years to the DMZ, whether it was finding people to hire, finding customers, or finding investors, they would host pitch nights where they would invite in their network of investors and you as a company in the incubator could go up, present, and pitch. Through that, we also learned about different angel groups. So a lot of different cities have angel groups that you can go in, tell them you're raising money, and then you go through a series of meetings with them where you're talking to individuals who run that group and then you eventually pitch in front of a larger portion of the group and then they decide if they want to invest. One of them in particular, I remember the group gave us one offer, but it wasn't aligned with the terms that we were hoping for. So we went back and shared them the term sheet with the terms that we wanted. And the group didn't come in as a whole, but some of the individuals from that group ended up coming in because they were aligned with our terms. So that was interesting. Probably took us 100 plus meetings, switching the deck over time and time again to really get some momentum built to raise the full round and then raise subsequent rounds since then. And the rest is history, really. Yeah, so this all much. happened in 2015. Yeah, we raised that. We switched our roles. We raised the first round. Uh, that actually allowed us to move out of Ryerson's incubator. Yeah. And then we moved into our first office at Richmond and Spadina, just above Whatabagel. More importantly, it allowed us to upgrade our team. In early days of a startup, mm -hmm. you're really just selling your idea to anyone and everyone who is willing to contribute. And Brian and I were both 20 years old and didn't have a ton of money to invest. So it was really getting people to work for equity or work for very little pay on contract basis. And a lot of those folks were interning or fresh out of school or out of coding boot camps versus seasoned professionals in whatever industry it was in that we needed or uh, whatever skill set we needed. So once we raised the money, we were able to get more senior developers, more senior salespeople, and really start building out the business. And because you're a tech company, did you create the tech from the beginning? Like, did you have that from the conception of? Yes. Okay. So we'll take a step back. Brian, my co-founder, right. and I have been best friends since kindergarten. We've okay. done everything together since we were two years old. Elementary school, high school, summer camp, winter camp, university. We lived together along the way. And a close friend of ours from high school, Ronnie, she blew up on Instagram. In the summer of 2013, she committed to a fitness journey and said that every time she went to the gym, she was gonna take a selfie. Every time she made a healthy meal, she was gonna shoot a flat lay to hold herself accountable to this goal she had set her, for herself. So we followed her journey, and six months later, she had 100,000 followers on Instagram. And this is back in 2013. Like There was no DMing, there were no videos, it was literally just a photo feed and comments. This is when Instagram launched, right? It was a few years after. Okay. 
Instagram, I believe, launched in 2010 and then was acquired in 2011, okay. if I am correct. Were you check. on from the beginning? I think around the beginning. I mean, I think I, I feel like it only really started to like be something that I used a second year university, though, really, at least for my platform. Like for business. For or business. Or trying to make it into a business. Yeah. But I mean, for people who started from the get go, I think they had. A yeah, lot of- she was one of the first. Fitspo accounts on like the original Fitspo hashtag. <laughs> Honestly, her Probably. handle is inspired to be fit. She still has quite the following. But what blew our minds was when we started analyzing her feed, we realized that because her mission was so genuine and her messaging was so authentic, it really resonated with people. So they followed her. Right. But even more so, when we dove into the comments, her followers were asking her, What sports bra are you wearing? What blender are you using? What protein are you mm-hmm. drinking? She'd endorse all these products without getting paid. And I found that to be a major problem. I, I didn't get into my background, but my last company before this was called Entourage Apps. Entourage being my favorite TV show of all time. I always had a dream of moving to Hollywood and being a talent agent uh, or starting my own agency. And then this seemed like an opportunity to do that where we could represent the new celebrity of the internet. At the same time, Bry was exploring product placement on YouTube and figuring out how YouTubers were monetizing outside of just the YouTube partner program. And together we came up with this concept of essentially product placement on Instagram. And that summer we went out and we asked our friend Ronnie, what are your favorite brands? And we brokered deals and got her paid and that really validated our idea that companies would pay social media users, they were not called influencers yet, would pay them for content and to distribute their messages. And so once that idea was validated, we said, okay, let's scale this up. Let's go and onboard as many of these people with followers as we could. And I remember sitting at my cottage one weekend for 48 hours, we didn't sleep and just scrolled through Instagram and found anyone and everyone with an email in their bio, which sounds obvious now, but people didn't have emails in their bios. There was no contact link. There was nothing like that. A handful of people, usually with 100,000 followers, or more had an email in their bio. And back then, someone with 100,000 followers was charging $100 to $500 for a post. Some of the biggest people on Instagram now, we were talking to on the phone when they had 50 to 150,000 followers just trying to figure out what this landscape needed. But anyways, we blasted about 700 people over email. By Monday morning, 500 of them were signed up saying, please help me monetize my Instagram account. So how did you sign them up? So did you guys have, like, did you create like a- At that point, It was really just a MailChimp email newsletter that just said, are you interested in monetizing your Instagram following? Click here. And then they were just added to an Excel list. And to answer your question about where the technology started, that was exactly when we knew we had to develop software. Because 500 people in an email, uh, in all these email threads, giving us brands they want to work with that we were trying to source through email, tracking all the results in Excel, having drop boxes filled with content, it was just a total shit show to manage. So we said, let's develop software to automate the whole process of finding the most relevant creators for a brand. And then the final step is actually tracking results. So having an analytics dashboard that tracked whatever metrics the marketer cared about. And so we built out the first version of our platform almost immediately in 2014. And that's when we launched as hashtag paid, which funny enough was actually just an affiliate network. So every influencer had a page on our site. Fun fact, we were actually called Insta Elite 
back then, the elite of Instagram, but for various reasons, like the fact that it's really hard to pronounce and that it would box us just into Instagram, we had to switch the name. But at that time, every influencer we worked with had a profile on InstaElite. So in their bios, the link that they would put in would be instaelite.com slash their handle. Mm -hmm. And when anyone clicked that link, it would take them to a page that looked and felt like Instagram, but was on our site. It showed all of the sponsored posts that they did. And if any of their followers clicked to buy, we would make an affiliate commission and then split that with the influencer. But the problem was, which I'm sure Amazon is realizing with their new affiliate Affiliate. program, is that the funnel is very long. From seeing an Instagram post, actually reading the caption, to clicking back, to clicking the link in the bio, to coming to our site, to finding the specific product they Mm -hmm. wanted, clicking the link, going to the retailer site and buying that product Mm -hmm. all in one session, even if someone had 100,000 followers, it was like a dozen people were buying. And that wasn't sustainable for us to keep a business growing or to keep the creators interested uh, in working with us. So we pivoted. That was our way of getting influencers on the platform. When you're a marketplace like Uber or Airbnb and you're trying to please both sides, in our case, influencers on one side and brands on the other, you need to have both. But how do you do that when you have none? So we would use affiliates as the brand partners to recruit influencers. Once we had enough influencers, we could go back to brands and say, hey, we actually have this roster. And once we started developing direct-to-brand relationships or ad agency relationships, we moved away from affiliates because the clients were actually paying us upfront to have these creators or influencers produce the content and distribute it. And now the way that your business runs is mostly focused on getting these clients as opposed to getting the influencers. Any influencer with X amount of following or engagement or whatever can sign up to your site, but your work is done to like get these big companies on board. Yeah, so back to the first question of my role, once I switched into sales six months into the business, that has been my focus for the last five years, going out and either connecting with ad agencies or brands directly and focusing around the marketer mindset and the value that they can get from working with these influencers. And so, I mean, I started as the first salesperson, then we hired others, as I mentioned, after we raised our first round, then I went into account manager and was executing some of the deals. Then we hired an account management team. Then we hired more sales folks. So I ended up becoming the sales manager of the team. And then having no experience running a company beyond, you know, a couple employees, let alone not having a business or marketing background, it got to the point where we had grown enough under my sales leadership where I said, we need to hire an expert to really take us to the next level. And that happened about a year and a half ago. So I moved from managing the sales team to now really being on straddling the line between sales and marketing. So I really, my my focus is building pipeline for the sales team. So the last year I've been traveling across North America, speaking at conferences in every major city, educating marketers on the evolution of influencer marketing. It's not what it used to be five years ago. There's a lot more value that you can get from these influencers if you really understand how to work with them. And so that's what I talk about. I mentioned that we work with creators now, not influencers, and that's part of this narrative that I give at these conferences around the fact that everyone wants to be an influencer. And when everyone's an influencer, nobody is. And because now billions of dollars is being spent on sponsored posts, people are trying to manipulate the system. They're buying fake followers, they're buying fake engagements. And starting midway through 2018, 
the biggest news outlets in the world were quoting the most senior marketers who were saying we no longer trust influencer marketing to actually solve our most critical business objectives. We don't trust that their followers are real. We don't know how to measure ROI. And even if we have some inkling it's working, we don't know how to scale these initiatives from just a few people to hundreds. And so part of us solving those problems, or the big problem of trust in the industry, was saying, hey, there are all of these people with followings, but that doesn't really matter. Who are the professionals? Who's the upper echelon of all of these folks that produce high quality content, that actually care about the brand partnerships that they do, not just work with one brand today, delete the post, and work with a competitive brand the next? And then who care to produce original content and build a following around that content versus Again, just manipulating the system to try and make a quick buck. Free stuff yeah. to, at the beginning, like there's so many people who go on Instagram now who are just like in it for the free shit. Like that's why when we started the podcast, we started with assumptions about influencers. So each episode we talk about assumptions of the type of job that the person who we're interviewing has. But we talked with the influencer space because there's just so much that people assume. And like there's also, I think, something to be said about the difference between creators or influencers or Instagram models. Okay, so you have the traditional way of advertising, marketing, spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on these campaigns. And then you have to pitch to these companies saying that you're going to get value in paying this person, let's say it could be five to $10,000 because in my view, as a creator, there is value if you're strategically putting, investing your money in the right players and also aligning yourself with the people who have the followers that are actually going to purchase your product or interested in the brand that you're promoting. But was it hard for you to go into a pitch meeting and say, like, instead of spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on this ad campaign, why don't you put that money into a creator campaign? How did you go into that and how did you convince them? I think that really just goes to business fundamentals okay. 101. A business can only exist if you're providing value. Right. All businesses is a value exchange between two people or two parties. So it's really for us, our job to make it as clear as possible for marketers exactly what value they're getting from working with us. And that can be working with creators, so making sure that they're actually working with the right people who right. have real audiences. It's making sure that they can actually streamline the work that they're doing. There's a lot of heavy lifting that goes into working with influencers. You've got to find the people, you've got to contract them, you've got to communicate back and forth and get content approved. Then even if you get through all of that and these posts go live, how do you know that the money you spent is actually giving you a you return? Data. You need data. And that's where the tech platform comes in. We couldn't do what we do without the technology we've built. It streamlines the entire process. Our clients have certain touch points in the platform that helps them move through those steps a lot faster and with confidence. On the point of data, early days, our Canadian clients would say, hey, we can only work with Canadian influencers. And we said, why? And they said, well, because they've got a Canadian following. But when you really dig into that, just because someone is from a particular location doesn't mean that their followers are from that same location. Totally. So having something like audience demographic data in your platform to know not just where the influencer or creator is from, but where their following mm -hmm. is located, their ages, their genders, their psychographic data, that really is the most important thing when matching a creator with a brand. And you guys what, came up with this before Instagram launched it as a as an page insight. on there. Yeah, it's been platform? integrated into our platform for quite some time. Every year there are new sort of players in the space uh, and we always want to have the most up-to-date and 
most accurate data. So things have changed in where and how we source that data. We've been sharing it with our clients mm -hmm. from very early days because that, again, is the most important thing. Is your message being delivered to the right audience? Um, and then lastly is making sure that they're actually tracking the metrics that matter to their business. I just saw the new home, well, relatively new homepage you guys have, and I was looking at that because I wasn't fully aware that that was a part of It's become so important. As I mentioned, mid-2018, the biggest marketers started coming out and saying they don't trust influencer marketing to solve critical business objectives. What does that really mean? We don't give a shit about likes and comments anymore. Yeah. Us being in Canada, we saw this firsthand. Six months ago almost, the leads of Instagram came out at Facebook F8 and said, hey, sorry, we're removing like counts from Instagram in Canada. And so people came to us and said, how's that affecting your business? What are you going to do now? I'm like, and we said, that's actually perfectly aligned with our narrative because we've been saying, move away from reporting on likes and comments and start tracking these metrics that matter. And now we're seeing it roll out across the US and a lot of our competitors are worried about how they're going to show value to their clients because they still just report on likes and comments. So when I talk about the metrics that matter, it really depends on what kind of company you are, large or small, what industry you're in, and then really what your business objectives are for a year or for multiple years. Uh, because every marketing campaign should start with an objective that's usually brought down by the C-suite or executive team saying, hey, we want to shift perception of our brand, or we want to increase consideration of our new product in this category, or we want to drive more evaluation of our products by having more people come into our store or come to our website. And what we found, while I don't believe this is the way brands should be built, the biggest, the oldest brands that we've worked with for the last five years, the marketing teams are generally split into brand marketers and performance marketers. So brand marketers are thinking of the top and middle of the funnel. If you picture a sales or purchase funnel, we all go through this each and every day, whether it takes us one second or years. If you're buying a home, you have awareness where you are hearing of a brand for the first time. You have consideration. Is my brand even in your consideration set when you're looking to purchase a particular product? You have evaluation, comparing different companies or brands that offer similar products. You have purchase intent. Are you showing any inkling of actually buying that product? Are you adding it to your cart, for example? And then you have the sale, but then you also have loyalty and retention. Are they coming back to continue to buy it? And so each and every single one of us go through that path to purchase every single day. You choose Starbucks, you might have made that decision and gone through that path to purchase journey the first time you ever chose it, but you're inherently doing it every single time you make any buying decision you do. And so brand marketers are usually working at the top to middle of the funnel, getting the brand out there, getting specific products out there and telling people about them and why they're different. Performance marketers are thinking about the bottom of the funnel, the actual conversion, the sale. So what we like to speak to brand marketers about is really the propensity to purchase metrics. So the leading indicators, was there brand lift? Was there brand recall? Was there an increase in web traffic or foot traffic into a store? Those are leading indicators that show you that your target audience is actually moving down that funnel and heading in the right direction. If you're a performance marketer, you're thinking about the conversion. So did someone actually sign up on your website? Did they download your app? Did they purchase your product? So depending on what part of the funnel you're trying to attack with your objective, your tactics are gonna be different. So awareness, 
for example, or consideration, they can be done both with organic posting, so traditional influencer marketing, an influencer producing a piece of content and posting it. If you're going for awareness, you probably want to work with either tons of smaller influencers to get that mass, the exponential reach of adding up all their followers, or you want to work with a few people who have millions of followers because it's all about reach and impressions. Whereas at the bottom of the funnel, you're probably developing lookalike audiences or retargeting people who came down this journey but haven't bought yet. And you're probably going to apply more paid social tactics. So when I talked about creator media, this concept that we've developed, really the evolution of influencer marketing, it's working with creators, not influencers, but then buying and reporting on them like media. So the biggest digital media players in the world are Google and Facebook. And they have their ways of buying and reporting, whether that's CPM or CPC or CPA. And so we've taken that organic relationship that brands have with influencers where they post their account, but then we've taken it one step further. Our relationship with influencers or creators doesn't end when they post. We look at all of the posts that went out in a particular campaign. We identify which creators were the top performers with what content. We look at what audiences those messages were resonating with, and then we double down. So we'll take, let's say, 20 posts that went out, we'll find the best five, or the top performing five, and we'll turn them into paid social ads. Imagine you're scrolling down your Facebook and Instagram feed, we all see ads every day, but it might say Nike sponsored or Coca-Cola sponsored. What we do is actually buy a whitelisted ad, is what it's called, so we buy our Facebook or Instagram ads through a creator's handle. So sometimes when you scroll down your feed, you see Christina sponsored. And that alone, making that one change of buying the ad through a creator's handle and using their content can increase performance by up to 5x. So let's say you're paying a dollar a click, you could be paying 20 cents a click because people are that much more inclined to take whatever action you're hoping for when it's coming from a person. People want to be spoken to by people even when it's an ad. Mm-hmm. So this paid social whitelist thing goes outside of their following. So you might have 50,000 followers, but I can take your name and mm-hmm. your photo or video and buy an ad that goes out to millions of people. And it doesn't have to live on your feed. So the caption that I put could be a little bit more branded or could actually have a promotion in it. Something that a creator might not want to put on their feed, you could still use the photo and their name to really drive the performance of someone buying the product. There's also a lot of people or brands that are doing that without asking permission. And I've seen photos, like I've seen photos for like huge content creators that I know and some smaller company using their photo for a sponsored post. It's just kind of annoying because now you get to the point where it's so hard to control or to monitor like who is using your content. But I'm sure in your contracts you have. In theirs, that, yeah. but there's like, say there's like a small like juice company that is like, we were what? It was like drinking a red juice that looked the same. It was mm-hmm. in the same container. And then they and used then it. And then they used but it. But that's what all those fast fashion brands are even doing they take photos and they use them on their sites they take instagram True. photos they use like them their on their e-coms. So that their e-coms. is something that we encourage and recommend i mentioned all of this value that you get from a creator mm-hmm. so there is the fact that a creator produces high quality one-of-a-kind content you don't need a creative agency anymore we've got creators totally. who produce tv quality auto commercials auto companies like Toyota, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on one Mm -hmm. single video that then we see in a TV commercial. Mm -hmm. 
our creators, they have drones, they have DSLR cameras, and they have the creative mind to be able to do the exact same thing at pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Like literally $20,000 yeah. for a video instead of $400,000 mm -hmm. for a video. So that's one part of the value exchange that they produce this high quality content. Second, they have a following, right. which is the reputation, their likeness, the trust that they've built. And that was really traditional influencer marketing. But then the evolution of creator media is combining those tactics of producing content, getting it distributed, but then amplifying it and taking it beyond their following, learning what worked, and then distributing it to millions of people through channels like Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, through their ad managers. And so, to your point, mm -hmm. all of our creators, when they sign up, the majority of them who have business accounts, they give us access. So there's actually like On a Facebook, handshake yeah. agreement through Facebook Ad Manager where they give you ads. access to yeah. buy ads through their account. Mm -hmm. You, I believe, were talking about when a brand buys ads through their own account yes. but yeah, use the yeah. creator's content. So that we encourage because it's still one step better than them just using their in-house content. Wait, you encourage what you guys do? Well, we encourage brands to repurpose creator content, but with their consent. Consent, yes. first. yeah. And um, if they've even worked with the brand, like I'm talking about someone who's never obviously worked with this influencer or creator, yeah. and they're just like using their well, photo for the sue. club. You can sue. But it's like how many times? How many times are you going to do that? Especially or if the awareness, level. you probably don't even know that it's happening. Probably doesn't know. Yeah. Okay, so. When you're working with content creators, do you work on one-off campaigns or do you like to have like a lasting contract for like multiple months or a year? Like Great. how does that work? We often talk about <laughs> in our first slides when we're introducing creator media to clients, the old way and the new way. Okay. So the old way is working with influencers, not creators. The mm -hmm. old way is measuring likes and comments, not these true media metrics. The old way is reposting existing content not having creators produce one-of-a-kind content. Going down the list, another one is that influencer marketing was really centered around one-off posts. Get this person to post about us once, let's leverage their likeness to sell some product. What we believe is, literally for four years now, we don't allow our creators to do just one post for a program. On any program any creator will be on through hashtag paid, you have to do at least two posts because that shows more brand affinity. Mm -hmm. It's more honest to your following that you actually give a shit about the brand that you're posting about, and it can tell more of a story. Just, again, thinking about the funnel. Awareness, if your followers don't know about the brand you're promoting, if you have it once in your feed, it doesn't matter. They're probably not gonna convert. Just like traditionally, they, on average, you gotta see a TV ad like 12 times mm -hmm. before you actually remember the brand and then go out and make that purchase. Mm -hmm. Same thing yeah. in other mediums like Instagram where you wanna be posting multiple times as a creator if you actually wanna have recurring business from a client. And as a brand, you want that message delivered to the same person more than once to actually drive them down that funnel. So the first post might be more lifestyle. Hey, it's me using a particular product in a setting. The next one might be talking about the features or benefits of that product. The next one might actually have a call to action of, are you interested? Go buy it, swipe up in my story, what have you. So it really helps take the followers through that journey mm -hmm. with more posts. Builds trust. Exactly, so that's yeah. one side of it. And then what we found, having interviewed hundreds of creators, they want long-term relationships. For sure. For sure. The ones that are taking it seriously, who see this as a career mm -hmm. path, mm -hmm. they email us all the time saying, 
We want longer-term relationships. We don't want one-off posts. We want to have you know a dozen brands that we work with annually that basically pay me a salary to some extent, mm-hmm. so that there's more predictability. Just like in any company, you want predictable revenue, so do most creators. And you also want your audience to see a more organic approach to what you're trying to promote as a creator. So I think that's also why. It's not like just for them for like the monetary aspect. It's also like, hey, if I work with 12 brands throughout the year, then my audience sees these same 12 brands. I feel better about it because I'm actually using them. They're not going to be using them for a year if like they actually hate the product, hopefully. Right. <laughs> it's a lot more yeah. authentic. And then your followers, actually believe you and will then convert and then it's a win-win for the creator monetarily and just it's easier workflow and your followers will trust you but it's great for the brand too we've gone quite far but i do want to touch a bit on like what you did before paid because of your like kind of tech background and you kind of developed like a bunch of apps i mean if we go way back what i'm most grateful for in my career is knowing what i wanted to do when i was 10 years old which was run my own business my father and grandfather were entrepreneurs i don't know i had a funny relationship with my parents where they'd tell me not to do something and i'd do it anyways same thing with teachers all forms of authority when i was young <laughs> i had problems listening to I can only learn if I try something and fail or try something and prove everyone wrong. I knew that I had to run my own company and I had little ventures growing up. But my first real business, I would say I started in the 12th grade. It was a high school event planning business. So I found the influencers, so to speak, on Facebook at at high schools (laughs) around the city. So we'd literally scroll through Facebook, find the boy and girl in every grade 12 class across the city who had the most Facebook friends, and we'd reach out and say, hey, will you sell this prom package for us that combines your corsage boutonniere, your limo ride, and your ticket to an after prom party that we would host at a nightclub in downtown Toronto. And these reps or influencers, they'd go around, sell their grade on the party and the extra services, and we'd pay them a commission on their sales. That business still runs now, 10 years later. I'm not involved. One of my reps actually took the entire business over and has run over a hundred parties, transported thousands of kids in limos, and sold lots of flowers. So that was the first foray into entrepreneurship. Buy a product for a dollar in bulk, sell it for two dollars, like business 101. And so I was running that while I was in university. I went to Western, really just following in my family's footsteps. My mom graduated from there, my brother and sister, who are both older, graduated from there. And I thought that if I went to Ivy, it would help me run my business better. But, uh, so you got into Ivy? No, that's, oh. that's where the story ends. <laughs> it takes a turn. Yeah. Like, Wait, what? I so I always crazy. wanted to, to go, go to Ivy, Ivy. Uh, and that's like why I went to yeah. Western in the first <laughs> okay. place. Uh, but at Western, you have to do two years of an undergrad right. before you can apply to Ivy. In the 12th grade, I loved writing uh, and English. So I took three English classes. And so I thought, hey, I'll go to Western. I'll do philosophy. I'll get stoned and write essays, <laughs> and, uh, and it'll be an easy route to get to Ivy. But that wasn't the case. I played a lot of online poker and was running the prom business. And my average after my first two years of university was like 68%. High school was 88% when I graduated, and they say you drop 5 to 10%. I dropped 20% in my first two years. And you need to have an average of 80 across your first two to apply and get in. So I had no chance at this point. They said I would have had to have a 99.5% in my third year to like make up for it and get in. And I'm like, okay, that's impossible. So I'm sitting in my apartment in London the first week of third year being like, what the fuck am I gonna do? 
I'm going to waste two more years of my life just to get a BA in philosophy. <laughs> like, this is two years of, like, my parents' hard-earned dollars going yeah. to nothing, in my opinion, and two years of my own time wasted yeah. not running a business. Right. So I contemplated dropping out for the prom business and running that full-time, but I knew that it wasn't going to be my future. Entrepreneurship is about taking calculated risks, and that one didn't make sense to me. But luckily... I was scrolling through Facebook one day and found a kid from New Jersey. His name's Spencer Costanzo. He was 18 years old, in the 12th grade, and put out 100 apps on the iPhone in one year and made a million dollars. And I was like, holy shit, I need to be this kid. So I sent him a message on Facebook. He was so nice and invited me to this group of eight other young app developers who were like 18 to 25 years old. I was 19 at the time. And I was blown away. These kids had anywhere from their first app out to hundreds of apps on, on the App Store and Google Play Store. And they gave me all of these resources to read and courses to take online. And I had never read a book by choice in my life other than forced to read textbooks. And I stopped going to class and I read dozens of books about entrepreneurship, about app development, about affiliate links, and just how money flows through the internet. There is an entire economy, trillions of dollars flows through the internet every day. It was mind-blowing to really see that you can put up a website or put up an app and have anyone in the world have access to it, and then lots of ways to monetize that viewership. So. Yeah, I stopped going to class, I read all these books, I started working on my first app, and it came out. I published my first app on uh, the iPhone December 2012. That was a few months into my third year of university. I didn't go to my exams, like, you need to come up to London and complain and get our money back for this first half of the year, because I'm not going back after winter break. I need to work on these apps, because this is what's going to make me happy and successful, because I'm miserable in school right now. And uh, I remember my dad came up. And we sat in my guidance counselor's office, and he's like, what's my son going to do with a BA in philosophy? And she's like, well, nothing. And we're like, what? She's like, yeah, you know, he'll, he'll develop the foundations of waking up early and, and getting projects in on time, and, and it's like a nine-to-five job. That's what school is. And we're like, but he doesn't want a nine-to-five job. He wants to run a business. Well, he's like, well, then you got to go to post-grad. And she's like, so more school? And she's like, yeah, you know, you'll do, you'll, you'll become a lawyer or you'll go back to and do an MBA. And I'm like, but I don't like school. That's why we're sitting here. Now you're telling me to do more school just to get back to where I'm at. So it made no sense. We went in circles and I dropped out that moment. And I committed to a goal that from January to September, my birthday, uh, I was going to put out three apps a month. So 27 apps wow. total. In that window, by about June or July, I'd put out 23 apps on the iPhone. They all ranked in the top 200 of their categories. They were all profitable. These were all techniques that I learned how to make my apps profitable through this group of young app developers. And how to build apps, right? Because you didn't have... Yeah, I had no background. Yeah, how did you... Like, so you I guess there's like, that whole part. In the air. So, so like, the tactics <laughs> around how to do that were, none of us are programmers, so how do you find programmers? Okay, okay, well, you can look for local North American ones, but they charge hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Right. Then I learned about outsourcing. And again, this is 2012, like... Upwork wasn't what it used to be. It was Elance and Odesk. And I was on Elance posting jobs every week saying, hey, I'm looking for a developer overseas to make this idea. After a few projects, I ended up having a few teams in India that I would work with regularly. And I had a local designer. So one of my favorite things about the app business was 
taking advantage of different time zones and different currency exchanges. So I was able to have a 24-hour work cycle because I would work 9 to 5 Toronto time with my local designer. Then I'd email the designs to India. I'd take a break from like 5 to 11 p.m. And then from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. I was on India time and they were developing the apps. And then I'd go to sleep 4 or 5 a.m., wake up at 10, and the app was coded. And so it just went design during the day, development at night, design during the day, development at night. And that's how I was Where able to have... We? Yeah. There, right there. there that was pretty much go. it. Yeah, Tim Ferriss was uh, an early uh, mentor. I've read all of his books and I just love the idea of automation. And so that was the time zone advantage, but then there was also the currency exchange. So I was living in Canada, spending Canadian dollars, but I was earning American dollars from the US app store, but my expenses were in rupees. In, in, in the Indian currency. So just from manipulating those, ta- those currencies, you could make an extra 5, 10, 20% you know, on every payout just because of the way the world worked. Right. That's how I got the 23 apps out, working with a team in India and a local designer. But why I stopped in July was because that's when our friend Ronnie blew up in July of 2013. And Brian and I were brainstorming and talking about different ventures and then it now flashes back to the Ronnie story about how she blew up and we saw her feed and we wanted to help her monetize her Instagram account. And had I not run those first two businesses, I don't think I'd be able to be sitting here at hashtag paid. Because just like people have jobs or different experiences that build seniority and confidence, I needed those two ventures to make me confident enough to now have 50 employees and deal with investors and stand in a boardroom in front of someone and present. So those were like the foundational building blocks that got me here. Just out of curiosity, what was your first app? My first app was called My Snapbacks and it cataloged every single snapback hat that New Era made. Okay. It allowed you to rate and share and buy the hats right from the app. It also allowed you to then log your hat collection. So you could take photos of your apps and they'd sit on a shelf and you could share it with friends. And so when you're at the hat store buying online, you can make sure that you're not buying a duplicate hat. There were a lot of trending (laughs) apps around Jordan shoes. And what I figured was, everyone who likes Jordans also likes snapbacks or fitted hats. And then what these kids taught me in the app group was rather than making one app and investing all of your dollars, all your eggs into one basket, Diversify. If you instead of making a million dollars off one app, make ten thousand off of a hundred apps, and it's the same end end goal. So what they were talking about was templating your apps. So rather than every app having different functionality, you can really just have the same app with different content inside of it. So my second app was called My Fitteds, and it was the exact same app for fitted hats. But now I had two separate apps that fed into each other. Someone might search Snapbacks, or someone might search Fitteds or New Era or what have right. you, and then they'd cross promote each other. And at that point, I mean, whether it was ad revenue or the sale of the app, you'd have two revenue streams versus just one. Just one. So coming back to now, like you have this very well-established company and you're in your second office now? Third? Technically our third or technically our fourth if you include uh, my basement in my parents' house where Brian and I started it. Then, yeah, the DMZ, then Richmond and Spadina, and now Adelaide and Peter. And you hire a lot of young employees like I'd say it's very millennial driven it can be it can be it's not about age it's just about your understanding of the landscape 
we're in a relatively young industry. Social media has only blown up the last decade or so. So it's just unlikely that 50, 60 plus year olds really understand every detail about social media because they understand TV or radio or traditional mediums or ways of advertising. That doesn't mean that there aren't. I'm impressed by tons of CMOs and older folks in the industry that we learn from each and every day. But our team, you got to really have a passion for social media. Like that's what we talk about. We're learning about each and every day. So we aren't exclusively looking for young people, but it often happens that young people are just more passionate about social and excited to solve this problem of trust in the space. When we walked in, like the office culture is very an open space. There's different places for you to work. Did you always have that? concept in your mind that you wanted a workplace that had that type of office culture or did it kind of just develop? Yes, so I love that question because I do my best work laying down, whether it's on a bed or a couch, just like feet up. I feel like for me being comfortable is the most important thing to get work done. We always knew that we wanted, yes, comfortable places in the office for people to work. I am particularly anal about my work setting and the environment around me uh, and how I feel when I'm working. So I was actually the one who spent the time with our brokers looking for the different spaces that we've had. And then Brian and I decorated and designed each and every space in this office to make sure that it was, you know, really conducive for creative work as well as, you know, heads down work. Um, and everything that needs to be done. So while it is young and fun and open, that is great a lot of the time. But other times it can be a pain in the ass. There's just certain things that, you know, you learn as you go. And while we want to keep it fun and exciting, like at the end of the day, this is still a company and we need to be a high performing team versus just a family chilling in a cool, homey environment. There's a balance. I like that. So we like to ask all of our guests on, in case you haven't heard, what are some assumptions that people maybe have about your job or hashtag paid or even the creator brand space? space. So is there anything that comes to mind? Like what assumptions do people have? Off the top of my head, I think people assume that being a creator is easy and it is not. It is a full-time job. You said that too. Thank you. <laughs> Everyone says it. Like I know all of the secrets and tactics of what makes a creator. I've seen people grow from hundreds of followers to hundreds of thousands very quickly doing certain things. And I've got 740 followers. Like I personally am more of a consumer than a producer of content on social. And I know how hard it is to be on 24 seven, 365. Like the thought of some follower of mine noticing me on the streets on a Saturday night when I'm drunk walking home from the bar is like terrifying. I really give kudos to creators because it is so much harder than people expect. Marketers, we sit in rooms, they're like, oh my God, I just want to be an influencer. It's so easy, they just get paid to post. But it's not. Just like you expect your favorite TV show to come on every single week, the expectation of creators is very similar, whether it's an Instagram photo every day or a new YouTube video every week or a podcast episode regularly. There are expectations that followers have of creators, and I think it's not easy to meet those expectations. Um, so that's one on the creator side. Um, I think about the business. People assume that because you've raised money, like we've raised close to $10 million from different investors over a series of rounds. They think just because you raise money that you're making millions of dollars <laughs> or balling out, but that's not the case whatsoever. There are struggles and ups and downs and problems lurking around the corner and it doesn't get easier. From day one, starting your idea or having your idea to getting your first customer to hiring your first 10 employees to raising money to scaling, it never gets easier. 
uh, we're halfway through the journey. We've been doing this full time for five and a half years and we've read a series of books and you can analyze the last 15 years of companies that have gone public. And that's really our goal or to at least create enough value that we could or, or sell. Mm -hmm. But every single successful company of the last 15 years, they go public in seven to 10 years. That's just the standard scale of a business. If you don't hit that trajectory, you missed it. We've been doing it for five. So we've got two to five years left to make this what we need to. And looking back on it, the first five years seemed really easy. <laughs> and now the problems, there are maybe fewer problems, but they're bigger and harder to solve. And so just because you raise money, just because you have a great office, just because you have 50 employees, just because you've paid millions of dollars to creators, it doesn't mean that you know, we're at the point where we're satisfied as founders or where our investors and our team members and advisors can see value from their shares. The value of the company increases with everything that we do, but in order to see that value, we have to go public or sell the company. And there are metrics that you need to hit to do that. And, you know, we're increasing our likelihood of having that exit and whatnot, but it's challenging. And so it's people often, close friends, even my family, they come and say, oh my God, can you hire me? Can you do this? Can you, can you sponsor this? Can you donate to this? And it's like, just because we've hit certain milestones doesn't mean we're a major success financially just yet where we're free to hire anyone we want or you know, pay for certain unnecessary expenses. We're actually at the point where we have to be so diligent with every penny that we have because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. We're halfway there and the back half is gonna be the hardest part and we need to be that much bigger, better, stronger in the next five years than we were in the last five. Everyone thinks it's so easy or this or that. and it's Or they like, could do it or, oh, that's an easy thing to think of, but really you didn't do it. So obviously it's this it whole wasn't. process. It's yeah. definitely easier to get started than most people think. And I do want to clarify that because that's my personal motivation of even accepting being on this podcast is my passion for turning more people into entrepreneurs. I speak at colleges and universities and high schools because I want people to realize that you don't have to go to university. I'm not saying don't, but if it's not for you, don't waste your time or your money, just work hard. And at the end of the day, if you are laser focused on an outcome, you'll see it through and your idea will change. We've pivoted a handful of times over the last five years, but laser focus on whatever it is that you want to do and it'll happen. But just getting over your own doubts, Fear, doubts, doubts and fears is really like the hardest part. Take your idea and put it into reality. Everybody has ideas, but it's the doers who yeah. are sitting here. When you're alone and you have an idea, mm. or I even it's just you <laughs> and your founder, yeah. and your co-founder, and you're telling your closest family or closest friends, like the earliest, like you just thought of the idea and you're sharing it with the first 20, 50 people, you're going to have headwinds and you're going to have tailwinds. Uh, it's a flight reference. I don't know. I've taken 75 <laughs> flights this year, so I feel like i got to talk about it. Headwinds hold you back. Headwinds are why it takes longer to get home from certain places than it does to get there. It's the wind blowing in the wrong direction. And those people you want to eliminate from your life as fast as possible. You want to surround yourself with tailwinds, people who push you in the right direction. Um, and you're going to have haters and you're going to have people who doubt your idea. But it's really making sure that you have tailwinds pushing you the positive folks, the people supporting you, mm -hmm. not the headwinds. Amazing. All right, so do you want to plug your personal uh, Instagram or is it public? I don't even know if it's public. If yeah, sure. Why not? Follow uh, at hashtag paid. 
Spell it out, H-A-S-H-T-A-G-P-A-I-D, <laughs> or follow me, at the Kid Riv on Instagram. Cool. Thank you so much. Bye, guys. See ya. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.